chapter 18 of Matthew. We'll be looking at this for the final time. Move into chapter 19 after that. It's the beauty of expository preaching. You always know where you're going. Please pray with me. Oh, Father God, we just ask you to uh, be with us as the word is ministered to your people. Holy Spirit, it is not my job to change people, but yours. Uh, Use the power that is invested in this preached word to do that to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many purposes for the Lord's Supper. Uh, It is something worthy of your study, of your time. It is certainly, first and foremost, and most obviously, what we call here the visible gospel. It, it, you look at it, and it is certainly just a reminder of, of what Christ has done for us, what he has forgiven us of. It is certainly an, a means of grace. It is a conduit through which God has, has ordained you to be spiritually nourished. That's why it is, it is uh, so central in the life of the church for 2,000 years. It's, it's also a recovenanting ceremony. Uh, throughout Scripture, you see this again and again and again in the Old Testament, the people of God coming together at various times and recovenanting and dedicating themselves to the Lord. And that is certainly something that also the Lord's Supper fulfills. It is a time when we consider our own depravity. You know, when we give our life to Christ, we don't instantly become perfect people. There is this sanctifying process. There's this process where, yes, the old man is still there that we just sang about. And we're reminded of of the innate depravity that we have. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, a man must should come to the table, ought to examine himself. It's a time of self-reflection in that way. And it is also a place where we keep short accounts with each other. 1 Corinthians 11 is certainly dealing with the horizontal relationship with with God in the Lord's Supper, but he's also dealing with uh, the vertical, the horizontal relationship we have with each other. This is a time when we ought to examine ourselves in that way too. Are our accounts short with each other? Are we in good standing with your brothers and sisters that you have covenanted together with. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, Life Together, about the sacrament of the Lord's table. He writes, Christian community should especially prepare for the reception of Holy Communion. The day before the Lord's Supper is administered, we'll find brethren of Christian fellowship together, and each will beg the forgiveness of the others for the wrongs committed. That should be something that should be part of of our body. God wants us to keep accounts short with each other. It's one of the purposes of the Lord's table. He wants us to be defined as a community, as a people of forgiveness, a forgiving people. And Jesus teaches that principle to us today in a radical way, starting in verse 21 of chapter 18. 
There Jesus said, there the word of God says, Then Peter came to, up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, implored him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, The master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and he put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not have you had had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Our natural hermeneutic, our natural way of approaching Scripture is to personalize everything. Pastor Jeffrey Curtis in his blog writes, We read the Bible as if it's a personal letter addressed to us. The problem is the Bible isn't written to you. It's written for you, but not to you. And that's one way that we ward off against over-personalizing, is to watch the context, the context that you're reading the Bible in. And we have discovered over these last several weeks that the context of Matthew 18 is the local church. That's the context into which Jesus is speaking all these things to his disciples. It's about living together. How do you live together as believers? It's about life together in the local church. And so when Jesus places a child in the beginning of Matthew 18, he places a child in their midst and he tells them to become like children. It's not saying that we should become humble, although that's true and that's biblical and that's good. Jesus is telling us as a community of believers that we should be marked by humility. This community of believers needs to be marked by humility. When Jesus speaks of cutting off our hand, if it causes us or others to sin, he is calling us to be a community that is to be marked with holiness, to be serious about our holiness, ourselves and each other. When Jesus speaks about leaving the 99 in that parable that we just looked at last week and going after the one lost sheep, he's not talking about evangelism here. 
Although evangelism is biblical, it's good, and it's critical, and it's explicit in the New Testament, that's not what that parable is talking about. It's about the loving concern that we should have for the wandering sinner in a local church, in a community of believers. We should have such concern for a fellow believer in the church that we pursue them, that we speak truth to them, that we love them enough to tell them the truth about their way of life. First individually, then as several, then as the church. Imploring them to repent, imploring them to return. Restoring the wandering sheep back to the sheepfold. But what happens if that sheep keeps wandering off? What happens if that person keeps falling into sin? What happens if that person keeps falling into the same sin and wandering off? What happens if there's a cycle of wandering, repenting, and returning? Wandering, and repenting, and returning. That's where Peter's mind goes. And that's what prompts him to ask the question in verse 21. He's saying, Lord, how many times should we go after this sheep? How many times? Seven? Peter thought he was being magnanimous there. The, the local, the rabbis at the time taught that three times. So he was going, well, if I double that and put one for good measure, how about seven? But Jesus takes this opportunity, as he always does, and teaches a foundational, upside-down principle of God's kingdom. And that is a radical departure from what we think. Being radical in our forgiveness. He is teaching us unlimited forgiveness. Unlimited forgiveness. Look at verses look at verse 22, Jesus' answer there. He says, "I do not say to you Peter seven times, but 77 times." In her book that's titled, After Every Wedding Comes a Marriage, Florence Lidauer writes this, I used to gather my husband's faults with the fervor of a child picking berries. I had a whole shelf of overflowing baskets before the concept of forgiveness fell heavily on me. Then, I thought I was being spiritual when I would pluck a few of Fred's faults and forgive them. But I never wanted to clear the whole shelf. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is telling us here as a community is we have to clear the whole shelf every time. That's what he means by 77. Some of your, some of your translations have 70 times 7. It comes from the Septuagint. But what he's basically saying there is you forgive so much that you lose count of how much you forgive. We are to be far more forgiving than we think. In a community of faith, Jesus is calling us to clear the whole shelf all the time. Eugene Peterson, pastor who just recently passed away, says simply, muckraking is not gospel work. Witch hunting is not gospel work. Shaming and casting out is not gospel work. Forgiving is gospel work. 
person who I was named after, William Blake, said, the essence of the gospel, the essence of the gospel is continual mutual forgiveness. To say it plainly, if a brother or sister repents, as many times as they repent, as many times as they repent, you forgive. You clear the shelf. Jesus said it plainly in Luke 17. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. Those are Jesus' own words. Limitless forgiveness. Limitless. Why do you think Jesus places this in front of us? Why does he place this limitless forgiveness in front of us? Why does he insist on such a radical concept that that chafes against our own heart? Because that's the heart of God. The heart of God is unlimited forgiveness. That's his heart. And what he's doing here is he's taking our malformed heart and he's conforming it to his heart. And it's so radical, isn't it? John 1 9 says, 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, we, we say that pretty often here when we enter the table. Because part of the table's purpose is so that we might examine ourselves, so that we might be reminded of sins, so that we might confess, so that we might repent, so that He will forgive us again and again for the same sin. That's His heart. Psalm 103, 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. He empties the whole shelf. And even though perfectly righteous, hanging on the cross, Jesus said those words, they're so instructive for us here. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What does that tell us? That tells us a, a ton of things. But at the very least, here we can, we can, we can pick the, the low-hanging fruit and say, he was perfectly right, yet he forgave. How instructive that is for us. You can be right. And still hold a grudge. You see, Jesus was pushing the limits of our forgiveness tolerance pretty far here. Because he's conforming our hearts to his. So where you, brother, where you, sister, hear those echoes of, but, but what about? That's the part of your heart he wants to cut off. Romans 8.29 says, For those he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Conforming in forgiveness is like becoming like Christ in your heart. Unlimited forgiveness should define us as believers. This should be a defining mark of the believers of God because it is the defining characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? John MacArthur writes, 
Nothing so characterizes the new nature of Christians as forgiveness because nothing so characterizes the nature of our Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is perhaps no clearer way to have confidence in our own salvation than to be able to look back over your left shoulder and say, I've become more forgiving than I was. So how do we become sanctified in this area? How how do we do this? Do we just say, I'm going to try to be more forgiving by a self-help book on forgiveness? How does a believer become more forgiving? It's the work of the Spirit, certainly, through the work of the Word. That's how you become sanctified, the Spirit through the Word. And God is going to use his spirit this morning to minister his word to our hearts by looking at this parable and seeing the clues that Jesus gives us to soften our own hearts, to cut off those areas so that it will fit into Christ's heart. And the first clue we see here is that you have to realize that you are naturally, that you are really naturally the wicked servant. That's who you naturally are. And it's what we see in verse 28, 29, and 30. The man who is forgiven so much we goes out and throttles. It says strangles. Think about that image. Strangling this guy to give him that little pittance when he has been forgiven so much. That's, that's who we naturally are. Unforgiving. That is our flesh. A husband and wife quarreled a lot. One day when they were not quarreling, the husband asked his wife, how is it possible after we quarrel you're able to be so calm the next day? You don't seem to be angry or upset with me anymore. I'm still so upset and you are cool, calm, and collected. The wife says, that's easy. I just, I just clean the toilet. How does that help, he says. Why well, clean it with your toothbrush. <laughs> Now, why do we laugh? Because it's funny. But it really it speaks to our heart. That's kind of who we are. We might do that. Maybe not actually. But deep in our hearts, we're cleaning the toilet with somebody else's toothbrush. And we need to realize our hearts are more like Lamex in Genesis 4 than we care to admit. You remember Lamech? He's a descendant of Cain, the, the brother who killed Abel. And in Genesis 4, it says that he, is, he was so boastful about how unforgiving he was. He boasted about how unforgiving. He sang a song. It says there, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. I think that Jesus had Lamech in his mind when he was talking to Peter here. Even though we are forgiven so much, we strangle people with our unforgiveness. We throttle them. 
We want to hang on to our grievances, don't we? Remember talking to a woman on a phone years ago about a, a issue she was having with a person and, and she just couldn't forgive her. And I was gently pushing and prodding, forgive, forgive. Finally, the person paused and said something that I never expected and, and it totally revealed her heart. I don't think she even knew what she was saying when she said it. She said to me, Blake, you can't take this away from me. It's our heart many times, isn't it? You can't take this away from me. This person did this to me. You don't understand. I'm holding on to this. And Jesus is saying here, unlimited forgiveness. As soon as we hear unlimited forgiveness, a one word pops into our mind though, doesn't it? One word. Unlimited forgiveness, what is it? But. But. But what if it's a certain type of sin, Blake? What if, what if the repentance is worldly, I think, and not godly? But what if it's the same sin over and over again? Don't you get it? How exhausting that is? But shouldn't there be boundaries we should have? Doesn't that show that we are, that it wasn't really repentant? If they have to repent again? But what about guarding our own hearts? But what about seeming, being seen as being too permissive? It'll, per, it'll create a permissive culture here. Robert Capo in Christianity Today writes regarding the parable of the prodigal God, while you and I may be worried about seeming to give permission to sin, Jesus apparently wasn't. He wasn't afraid to give the prodigal a kiss instead of a lecture, a party instead of probation. And he proved it by bringing the elder brother in the end of the story and having him raise pretty much the same objections we do. You see, all our butts show us that we are more like the wicked servant than we care to admit. We are always ready for the exception, aren't we? My, my grievance is unique. We're prone to hang on to those. To put it in terms of this parable, we're willing, willing to receive mercy, but we're not so willing to give it. So if someone wrongs us, watch out. Watch out. I'm willing to be forgiven of my judgmentalism, but watch out if you judge me. I'm willing to be forgiven for my lust, but watch out if someone commits adultery. I'm willing to forgive my lying, but watch out if somebody lies to me. I'm willing to be forgiven of my verbal abuse, but watch out if somebody verbally abuses me. I'm willing to be forgive, forgive, forgiven for my gossip and my slander, but watch out if you tarnish my reputation. Isn't that how we go through it? 
The Bible teaches us over and over again, we are more like the wicked, unforgiving servant than we'd like to admit. That our hearts are deceitful above all things and cannot be trusted. Jeremiah 17.9 That our tongues are full of deceit. Psalm 5 That we would much rather live in the darkness than the light. John 3 Brothers and sisters, if you want to become more forgiving, begin to come to terms with what you're willing not to admit. Instead of defending yourself and blame shifting and denying, give the gospel a door into your heart by saying, yeah, I think that describes me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote again in Living Together, anyone who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sins of a brother. Looking at the cross of Jesus, he knows the human heart. He knows how utterly lost it is in sin and weakness, and it goes astray in ways of sin. Brothers and sisters, the gospel gives us the freedom to realize that we are that wicked servant. It's okay. Secondly, if you want to develop a forgiving heart, realize the debt we are owed. Realize the debt that we owe. Verse 24, you see there that that he is forgiven uh, by this magnanimous master, this king of of, uh, 10,000 talents. There's probably been tomes of books written on how much this is. Some people say as high as $17 billion. But for biblical perspectives, let's just stay in the Bible. In 1 Kings 10, we understand that Solomon's annual revenue of the whole country, the country's GNP, was 666 talents of gold. So, So this man is being forgiven 15 years worth of a country's GNP. And the point is that this debt is, is totally and utterly unrecoverable. You can't work your way out of this debt. Totally underwater. No chance of paying it back. In other words, this man was in a hopelessly, uh, utterly hopeless situation. Utterly hopeless. And that's the exact perspective that the Bible casts on our debt of sin to God. Utterly hopeless. You can't work your way out of it. It's GNP of a country type of debt. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul develops this argument that both the Gentiles, which the Jews get, but then the Jews are in this same situation. You're utterly hopeless. In chapter 3, he even compiles a list of no less than eight biblical references, Old Testament references, to, to give a litany of how sinful both Jew and Gentile are, finally declaring in 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short. We all fall short and dreadfully short. I'm a child of the 70s, and so when I 
hear the words evil Knievel, that kind of brings me right back into that era. Evil Knievel was a daredevil. He used to jump things on his Harley Davidson. And on September 8th, 1974, there was a huge national buzz that Evil Knievel was going to jump over the wide chasm of the Snake River Canyon. Mile wide, he was going to jump over it. He had a special, uh, what he called, sky cycle made. And he got in this kind of rocket-propelled cycle. After a hype and preparation, the countdown came, three, two, one, and he launched out there, and he ended up only going a few feet, and then the parachute took him down to the bottom of the canyon. He only made it a few feet. It was one of the worst jump failures in history. He barely went anywhere. We read Romans 3.23, it says we fall short of the glory of God, and we think, well, we don't fall that short. I mean, I'm pretty good. I can get most of the way over, and perhaps like, like a Tom Cruise movie, grab onto the other side and pull yourself up. No. You're like evil Knievel. You go a foot and go right down the chasm. Your huge sin debt is so heavy, so onerous, that just like evil Knievel, you barely get off the ground. And Jesus is teaching us in a very, very deft manner until we realize how very short we fall. Until we realize how great the sin debt is. And, and here is the key to the whole parable. Here is the melting point. Until we realize our great sin debt has been forgiven, you will never, ever be a forgiving person. You have to realize how great the debt is and how much you have been forgiven if you want your heart to change. The enormous sin debt you have been forgiven. Our parable when the master learns the servant was so unforgiving, he dresses him down. You can look there in verse 32. He says there, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Um, married Christian couple were in counseling together because they had a hard time forgiving each other. After months and months of discussion and dialogue and back and forth and self-righteousness this and self-righteousness this, that, the counselor was at an impasse. Neither the husband nor the wife wanted to budge an inch. They both thought they were totally just in holding on to their grudges. Exasperated, the counselor finally said, I totally understand why it's impossible for you to forgive each other. I don't blame you for that. Because I believe the only way you can ever forgive each other is when you have first tasted an even greater forgiveness in your own life. Brothers and sisters, how do we become forgiving people? Tasting an even greater forgiveness in our own life. 
C.S. Lewis wrote, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Christ's life, death, and resurrection. You who are inexcusable have been excused. And the more you meditate on how God, through Jesus Christ, has forgiven you, the more your heart will melt. The more you meditate on the gospel, the more you meditate on on how much you have been forgiven, the less you will throttle those people in your life. The more you meditate on the enormity of what you have been forgiven, the less righteous you will be about your own grudges. The less you will say like that person, you can't take this away from me. The more you meditate on the chasm between you and God and what Jesus had to go through to bridge that chasm, the softer your heart will become. So meditate on how Jesus had to resist each and every temptation for 33 years perfectly. How hard that was. How hard that was. How hard is it for you to resist that thing that that when you come up to it, you go, I don't know if I can do this. And he did it. Meditate on how Jesus resisted obliterating Pontius Pilate and Herod and Anaphis and Caiaphas. Have you ever thought about that? He could have obliterated them. There's a great little song that that Dave Underwood used to sing at Easter. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. That is true. Yet he resisted that power play and chose to go to the cross for you guys and me. Meditate on how he resisted the temptation to come down off that cross. You read those passages in Scripture where Jesus is hanging there naked and they're teasing him, they're ridiculing him. The song continues and says, He could have called down 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. And let that melt your heart towards others. Meditate on he was tormented by our sin, tormented on the cross by our sin. He died absorbing your sin punishment, paying your enormous sin debt. And it is enormous. So is mine. Do you want to become a forgiving person? Inhale the gospel deeply. And that slowly, what slowly starts happening is your heart begins to melt. You slowly become a more and more forgiving person. I love this time of year for many reasons. One reason I love this time of year, this Advent time that we're going into, is because I get to watch Christmas specials. (laughs) And my favorite type of Christmas specials are those old Rankin and Bass stop-motion Christmas specials. And my favorite Christmas special of those Christmas specials is Santa Claus is Coming to Town. You know that one? Where it tells the story of how, how Chris Kringle became Santa Claus. 
you know, how he grew up over here and, and, and uh, somber town was over here. And in the middle was, was this forest with the, with the winter warlock. Do you remember the winter warlock? And how he had to kind of sneak around the winter warlock to, to deliver the toys to Sombertown. You remember that time that he, he got caught by the winter warlock? The trees kind of got him. and He, knew, he was in danger. And the winter warlock with all his power was going to come down on Chris Kringle and crush him. You remember what Chris Kringle did? He gave him a choo-choo. He brought him, this choo-choo is for you. And the winter warlock took the choo-choo. And that kindness melted his heart. And he became good. And he, he helped Chris Kringle. Brothers and sisters, we've been given a lot more than a choo-choo. Do you want to become a forgiving person? Do you want to be released? Inhale the gospel deeply. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your son and for what he did for us on that cross. Help us, Lord, to do exactly what you call us to do here and inhale the gospel deeply. Help us to forgive by remembering you. In Jesus' name, amen.